This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. My name's Will. I'm the youth and college pastor here at Church of the Resurrection. It's great to be with you this morning. Uh, back in October, my family took a trip out west to Phoenix, Arizona to see relatives. And finally, after many visits over many years, finally, I convinced everybody to make the four-hour trek to see the Grand Canyon. And if you've ever been, you know that the Grand Canyon is just indescribably vast and beautiful. I mean, from one vantage point, you could look down and just see a little speck of the Colorado River 5,000 feet beneath you, a full mile beneath where you're standing. It's breathtaking beauty. It's too much to take in all at once. But the Grand Canyon wasn't all that I was looking forward to because the area surrounding the Grand Canyon is, at night, one of the darkest, least light-polluted areas of the country, meaning it's one of the best places in the country for stargazing. And on our way home, we pulled off onto a random dirt road. If you remember my sermon back in December, it's a different random dirt road kind of experience. I intentionally pulled off onto this road. And we drove away as we shut off all of the lights in the car and looked up at this vast, breathtakingly beautiful, starry night sky. Now, growing up, I had heard the words Milky Way, but those didn't mean much to me. That was a candy bar that I enjoyed, right? I had, I had no experience until seeing the stars like this, where you can clearly see this band of light going from horizon to horizon overhead. And apparently, only 20% of Americans live in a place where they can see the Milky Way at all. And only 1% of Americans live in a place like around the Grand Canyon where you can see it this clearly. Can you imagine? Just 100 years ago, everybody on the planet had access to that view on every single clear night. It's incredible. What would that do to the way that you see the world if you were exposed to that much beauty every evening? When you're looking at a sky like that, you feel small, but you feel small in a good way. You feel small in the presence of something big and grand and majestic that you could never comprehend. And that feeling of smallness in the presence of something great, that's what we call awe. And from awe comes wonder. As in, where did all of this come from? Who put these stars here? And is there some kind of meaning that I am supposed to take away from an experience of this much beauty? Well, this morning, we celebrate the Feast of the Epiphany. The 12 days of Christmas are over, and in this new season, we celebrate the unveiling of God's glory in a human person, in Jesus Christ. And every year, we read this story, the story of the Magi, these wise men. Matthew doesn't say how many, but usually we assume that there were three, so let's imagine three. Three wise men, three stargazers who journeyed to worship the Jewish Messiah. And our other reading in Isaiah says that, that the day would come when nations would come and worship the God of the Jewish people. The, the Magi, they're at the vanguard of this movement. The 
first Gentiles to worship Jesus, and they would be followed by billions and billions of others. The question I want to ask this morning is this. Why make this journey? Not the physical journey of the Magi with their camels or however else we imagine that happening, but the spiritual journey. Why make a spiritual journey not just to God, but to this God, to the God uniquely revealed in Jesus? Why make that journey? And perhaps you're here this morning because one of your New Year's resolutions is to explore faith. Something in your life, maybe something good, maybe something bad, something in your life has stirred up this spiritual hunger, and you're here at church wondering, can the church provide answers? Can the church provide uh, some, some satisfactory story to believe in? Can the church provide what I'm looking for? Well, this message is for you. This is my case for why you should make the journey to Jesus. Or perhaps you're here because you're always here on Sundays and you're worried that people would judge you if you didn't show up. No, just kidding. Perhaps you're here because you're always here, but that doesn't mean... I'm keeping you on your toes, okay? But that doesn't mean that you don't have moments of doubt or questioning. And so this message is for you as well. Why make the journey to Jesus? The first reason, because there are still signs in the stars. Going back to Matthew's gospel, we know barely anything about the Magi. I mean, who they were, where specifically they came from. But we know this, that they were scholars. They were scientists, astronomers who knew the stars. And not like what we know about the Big Bang and quantum mechanics and all of that, but they knew the stars, and they knew them better than most of us know them today. When ancient astronomers looked up at the night sky, like I looked up at the night sky, outside of the Grand Canyon. They don't just see a smattering of lights, but they saw patterns. They saw organization. They saw collections of stars that moved and reappeared in an ordered way, season after season, year after year. Ancient astronomers saw a logic to the universe. And the Gospel writer Matthew tells us that a star, a comet, a light appeared in the sky on the night that Jesus was born. And these astronomers knew the skies well enough to notice it. It was science, it was study of the natural world that led them to Jesus. And now many assume today that there's a conflict between science and faith, that science you know, deals with the cold, hard facts of reality that we can see and touch, while faith is just a mere matter of, of belief, of conjecture. But this story in Matthew says otherwise. Science and faith, they're not opposed, but they are different ways of knowing. Science deals with the natural world. Faith deals with the supernatural, the beyond natural. But as we'll see again and again, science has this way of gesturing, of pointing towards the supernatural, both by what it says and by what it doesn't say. Let's look at what science says. Some scientists talk about this principle called uh, the Goldilocks principle that in order for life to exist, not just here on the earth, but in order for life to exist anywhere in the universe, things have to be just 
right. So these are things like the size of the planet. So you take Earth as an example. Earth is large enough that our our, um, gravitational field pulls in an atmosphere so that we can have things like warmth and a water cycle, things we need to survive, the air we breathe. But if it were just a little bit larger, our atmosphere would also retain all of these toxic gases that would choke us out. The size of our Earth is just right for life. Or our proximity to the sun. If our Earth was just 5% closer to the sun, our oceans would boil. If we were just 5% closer to Mars, our oceans would freeze solid. Even our location in the galaxy. A little bit closer to the middle, we'd be overcome with radiation. A little bit further to the edge, we wouldn't have heavy metals like iron that our bodies need to survive. One final one, if the rate of expansion in the Big Bang were just infinitesimally faster, that bang would have happened, and then the whole universe would have just instantly collapsed on itself, and nothing and no one would be there. Nothing would exist. There are a whole litany of facts like these. And if you put them all together and ask, what are the chances of all of these things being just right for life to exist, not just here, but anywhere in the universe, you would have a better shot at going up as high as you could into the atmosphere, dropping a paper airplane and having it land on your house than you would all of those things coming together for life. Science, by its nature, can't tell us about the supernatural but it gestures towards it. It points towards it. And science also does this by what it doesn't say. So some people think that, you know, scientific knowledge is supreme because these are the cold, hard facts of life. Things like philosophy and theology, lesser forms of knowing. But if, if scientific knowledge is all you have, then you're really limited. Bishop Barron, a Roman Catholic apologist, he brings this out. He says, he says, you can look at a beautiful painting. Think like Vincent van Gogh's Starry Night. And science can tell you very clearly the chemical makeup of all of the pigment in that painting. But science cannot tell you why you and so many others find that painting objectively beautiful. Science can't tell you that. It's limited. Science can tell you about the the geologic strata that lies beneath the city of Chicago. But science cannot tell you a thing about how to structure the government of Chicago in ways that are just for all people. Science can give you a lot of helpful information about dopamine and oxytocin, the things that happen as we fall in love, but science cannot tell you about the nature of love or what we owe to our friends, to our romantic partners, to our wives, to our husbands, to our children. Science can't bring us there, it's limited. And so science, by the nature of its limitations, is always pointing beyond itself to the things that give our lives ultimate meaning, beauty and goodness and truth, which is why when we stargaze, We love learning about the origins of these stars, the size of them, how far away they are. But our hearts, these these big questions still tug at our hearts. Yes, but who put them there? And why? Why am I surrounded by all this beauty 
What meaning is there for me? These magi, these wise men, they went on a journey to Jesus because they saw signs in the stars. They weren't just scientists, astronomers. They were also students of religion. They were looking for meaning. And they, though they weren't Jewish, they knew enough about Judaism to know that this star had meaning not just for the Jews, but for them as well. Why make the journey to Jesus? Because there are signs in the stars. And secondly, because there are dangers in our world that we cannot overcome. Dangers we can't overcome. The Magi journey to Judea, this region of, of land, but first they go to Jerusalem, and they go to the royal palace. They go to a king named Herod, and what's immediately clear to Herod is that the birth of this baby boy is a threat. See, because Herod, Herod is a puppet king. His family was placed on the throne, but he was placed there by the Roman government. He understands that he's already on shaky ground. And if you know the story, he asks the wise men, yeah, report back to me. Tell me. Tell me when you find this baby boy who's born. But what he doesn't tell them, what he hides, is that he plans to kill the boy and end the threat to himself. And one thing that keeps people from making a journey to Jesus, perhaps the main thing, is seen right here. That in our world, Rich and powerful people have a say over the lives of innocent children. If God is good, then how could he allow all of this suffering, all of this danger, all of this war, all of this evil? And while this question has driven many people away from Jesus, it's also driven many more towards Jesus. Because if you want to know God's answer to evil and suffering, even horrific evil and suffering, then look no further than this innocent baby boy. What we see in this story is that God is not distant from suffering. He enters in. In Jesus, God becomes vulnerable and susceptible to the very same things, the very same fears that keep you awake at night. And so God can fully sympathize with our suffering because in Jesus, he's experienced it himself. Another name for Jesus is Emmanuel, Hebrew for God with us in all things, even in the depths. But there's more because not only does God enter in to share in our suffering, but he enters in in order to do something about our suffering. The Magi come to Herod and they ask, where is he born king of the Jews? Jesus comes in order to reign as a king. This is what we read about in today's psalm reading. What do kings do? They're supposed to establish justice. They're supposed to blot out evil. They're supposed to protect the vulnerable. And Jesus comes to do all of these things. And yes, he does it in the most surprising way not through battle and violence, but through the shedding of his own blood on the cross. Jesus becomes a victim of the world's hatred and animosity in order to show that evil and death will not have the final word. In his resurrection, Jesus shows that love, God's own sacrificial love, is what has the final word 
in our universe, in our world. And he promises to return and set the world right once and for all. There are dangers in our world that we cannot overcome. And of course, I don't have to prove that to anybody. Wars that we don't have an answer for, acts of terror that we can't explain. But we make the journey to Jesus because he is God's answer to all of those things. And his light scatters the darkness. Of course, Christianity isn't the only religion that has an answer to the problems of evil and suffering. And so finally, why Jesus? Why this God among so many others that you could believe in? And there's a lot we could say here, but again, I'll take my cue from from Bishop Barron and say this. Why Jesus? Because no religion offers a greater hope for humanity. No religion offers a greater hope than Jesus. An early church father, Athanasius, said this, God became man so that man might become God. God became a human being so that human beings might become God. That's a bold statement. What does that mean? It's not that human beings could become these eternal, uncreated beings like God is. That's impossible. But God becomes a human so that we can share in his divinity. We can share in his godliness. And no religion can offer a higher view of the human person than that. That the God over all creation, over everything that is, would humble himself and become small, would become a human baby. I mean, that alone is a remarkable statement about the dignity of every human life. That God would become like us, that wasn't beneath him, as it were. But going further, God does this so that we can become like him, so that we can live forever with him and in him. That's the promise of the incarnation. And you compare that comfort to the comfort offered by other religions, not to put them down, but just to compare them. I mean, some religions promise eternal rewards when you die, eternal pleasures, eternal happiness, and all of that sounds pretty great, but what Jesus offers is better because it gets at the core of who you are. What Jesus offers to you eternally, forever, is relationship, eternal relationship with your maker and with all of those who belong to him. Another religion promises Union with the universe, that when you die, at least you know that you become one with everything else and everyone else that has ever existed. But notice the grief inherent in that view. You gain the universe, you gain this peace with everything, but you lose yourself. You lose your distinctiveness, your unique story, your personality, your gifts, your strengths, your loves are just lost to oneness with everything else. But in Jesus, the story is different. In Jesus, your destiny is that you 
with all of the things that make you, you, you will remain. Only without all of the things that you wish you could leave behind, your, your bad behaviors, your bad habits, your regrets, your unhealthy desires, you are not lost to oneness with everything else. You are not lost to this never-ending cycle of reincarnation where you forget who you are and who you once were. But you remain you and yet more you than you were ever able to be in this life. You remain you, but more free to be yourself than you had ever been before. That is what the incarnation, God becoming man, points to, that you get to share in God's divine nature for all of eternity. No religion could offer a higher view of the human person than that. And this hope is not just something you have to wait for on the day you die, but this, is, this hope is something you can participate in even now. This glory is something that you can participate in even now with even the simplest prayer of faith. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief, as one of Jesus' followers said. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Today, you can share in God's own life that animates the universe. Today, you can be strengthened by His Spirit who promises to live within you. Today, you can begin a journey that will only lead you further up and further in to the divine life that ordered the stars, that overcomes evil, and indeed is the very purpose for which you exist. You were made to enjoy God's life forever. And Jesus Christ, this man, fully man and fully God, the Father, the creator of all, has revealed his glory. And the nations have come to him. And the invitation to faith, or greater faith, is open to you this morning. Let's take a moment just to pray and sit with this beautiful proclamation. Father, I pray for any this morning who in hearing this word are experiencing that spiritual hunger to know you, to know you more fully. And Lord, I pray that you would hear their prayer and that you would answer it, that you would give them grace to reach out to you in faith, grace to believe. that's you this morning, whether for the first time or, um, or whether you've known Jesus for a long time, pray with me. Lord Jesus, I believe. Help my unbelief. Lord Jesus, as much as I can, I believe. 
help my unbelief. Show me your glory. Show me that these things are true. Amen. If that was you this morning, I encourage you to pray with somebody else. We'll have prayer ministers at the side, folks wearing white robes. We wear these because we love to pray. Please find one of us. We would love to pray with you. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.